right, good morning. Good morning, yeah. Well, welcome to Waters Church again. My name is Tim, if you're here for the first time. I'm the pastor of this campus of Waters Church. So glad that you're here. We're going to continue with Make War, our series we started last week. We're going to go to part two. And we're going to ask, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. A little later, we'll go to 2 Timothy 2. But we're going to start in Genesis 3 in just a moment. How about that for a song? Wasn't that cool? They asked me to do the rap for obvious reasons. And I declined to let the younger folks take care of that stuff. No, that was cool. That was really good. We got a good church going on here. Amen, somebody. Last week, we talked about that we are in a cosmic battle. We are in a, a cosmic battle with forces and enemies that are unseen. And uh, Paul talks about them in Ephesians chapter 6, that they are principalities, rulers, authorities in the high places, in the heavenly realms. They are unseen, but they are real. We can't see them, but we can see their effects. We said last week that we got a spiritual enemy. He's out to get us. He seeks those whom he may devour. He wants to destroy your life. Last week, we talked about the battleground. That is for marriages. It's for parents and children. It's for families. That ultimately is about how we work unto the Lord, that the enemy is alive and well there. We need to take up the armor of God. We talked about this last week for the sake of bearing witness to the world that Jesus is alive. And ultimately, we know that through Jesus, our spiritual enemy is defeated. But last week, we talked about the fact that we need to appropriate that victory in prayer. And I encouraged you last week that you need to pray in the spirit. You need to pray for spiritual victory. And as we talked about in the Lord's Prayer, or, or what's better called the Disciples' Prayer, that as Jesus said, we should pray every day that God will supply our daily bread. A few lines later, he says, and deliver us from what? From the evil one. And so what Jesus is implying there is that as often as you ask God to supply your needs, that's as often as you need to pray for spiritual victory in your life. And so I encourage you, and I told you, parents, pray for your children. Pray that your children will be protected from the evil one. You have an opportunity to see victory in their lives, to see them become mighty women and mighty men of God in their generation. Pray against the spiritual forces that are coming against your kids. Also ask that you pray for your marriage. Pray that God will bring peace to your marriage, joy and happiness, that there will be a resurrection of the power of God in your marriage because the enemy loves to attack your marriage. Pray for yourself. Pray that you might be victor victorious in your daily battles with the enemy. Pray that you will have spiritual knowledge beyond where you are presently and that you'll grow in the knowledge of God and that you will stand in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ and that your life will be a reflection of the power of God. And that was what was last week, and I encourage you, if you ever miss the messages, you can go on our website at waterschurch.org, and you can watch all previous messages. But we're going to look today at our enemy, and we're going to acknowledge that he has a plan, he has tactics, he has a methodology, and this methodology is as old as the fall of man. And we're going to go there in just a moment, but I want to look at two scriptures first. 
Back to our original scripture for this, for this series, Ephesians chapter 6. In talking about our spiritual warfare, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able, so that you may be able to stand against the what? The schemes of the devil. The devil has some schemes. The devil has some plans. The devil is not haphazardly throwing temptations at you. And you need to know what he does. How does he scheme? What particularly does he plan out for you? And how does that happen? And so that's what we're going to look at today. Another scripture, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Does she need to get some water? You can get some water for her. I feel bad. She's coughing up here. And nobody should cough in church like that. Amen. No, don't worry about it. I just want to make sure you're all right. All right. Amen. I have some water here too. If you need it, so just put your hand up. I'll give it to you, okay? <laughs> I felt bad. All right. But the devil has schemes. The devil has a plan. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Satan has a carefully laid out plan. He has a carefully laid out plan for your life. As much as God has a plan for you, Satan has one too. Being ignorant of his plan is the best way to, to play right in to his plan. So we're going to go all the way back, all the way back to Genesis 3. The good news is this. Well, first off, the bad news is he's going to come at you with a plan. The good news is, thank you, Chris. The good news is he's not creative. He's been doing the same stuff for 4,000, 5,000 years of human history. I want to ask that you stand with me, and we're going to read from chapter 3 of Genesis. Chapter 3 of Genesis, just a few verses. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But when the, God, but when the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said to him, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Let's pray. Father, we ask that our spirits will be spoken to through your word today. I pray that our eyes will be opened, our ears will be opened, our hearts will be changed. I pray that you'll plant good seed in our minds and in our hearts, that we will be changed and transformed through the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Everybody say it. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So what are the schemes? What's this plan 
of our spiritual enemy. If you're taking notes, number one, he speaks for God. The devil doesn't hit Eve. <laughs> he doesn't wrap around her neck or anything like that. He just talks to her. And the thing you got to know about your enemy is that that's all that he can really do to you. He can just talk to you. But how he talks is this. He speaks on behalf of God. Now look at what he says to Eve. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree in the garden? Let me ask you a question. Is that what God said? No. God said, you can eat all the trees of the garden. Just one tree I ask that you don't eat. And that's because God didn't want automatons. He didn't want robots. He wanted us to have free will to exercise obedience or disobedience. And so God's actual first commandment to mankind was this. Be fruitful, increase in number. I've given you every tree in the garden for food. But the enemy comes in and look at what he does. He exaggerates the one prohibition that God has for them. The one law. And he exaggerates it. He makes it seem impossible. He says, is it true that God put all these trees here in the garden and, and, and he's not letting you have any of them? What kind of a God is that? And this is a strategy of the enemy from day one. He loves to make God's laws seem restrictive and oppressive and cruel. God's not going to give you anything. And he does it in our lives. He does it in our minds. He does it still today. He does it in churches. Man, churches are big for taking the laws of God and exaggerating beyond even what this book says. In fact, my parents grew up in a church. My mother specifically grew up in a church that was extremely legalistic. Extremely legalistic. And they couldn't do anything, man. I'll tell you, they not only had to obey all the rules that were in this book, they had to obey all the rules that the church actually put into this book. Like they couldn't just not, you know, lie and not steal and do those things. They couldn't dance. They couldn't uh, take a sip of alcohol. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, if you were a woman, you couldn't wear pants. I mean, these were the laws that they just put on people, and they just started adding to the rules. This was the Pharisees' problem, by the way, too. The Pharisees took the rule, do not work on the Sabbath, and they added 39 stipulations as to what qualified as work. Picking up your mat, sewing a thread, putting a light on for too long. Those were work, and you were sinning. And this is what the enemy loves to do. He loves to take God's laws and exaggerate them so they seem oppressive and restrictive and burdensome. Did God say you can't eat any of these trees? What kind of a God would do that? And we do this still today. Some of you still buy some of these lies yourself. That the enemy comes and he says, doesn't the Bible say that sex is bad? Sex is evil. Sex is wrong. You shouldn't even think about sex. Oh, you're thinking about sex. Shame on you. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. And he loves to exaggerate God's word. And the reality is the Bible tells us that God created sex. God gave sex to mankind. It's one of his finest gifts. <laughs> in fact, that was part of the first commandment in the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply. God was not talking about peers and peaches there. He was talking about having babies. His first command to Adam and Eve was have sex early and often. Fill this place up real quick. 
I mean, no, the world's a big place. Two people to fill that up. They got to keep going, baby. Come on, pop them out, Eve. Right? But the enemy comes and says, no, 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 sex. The Bible says sex is dirty. Sex is evil. No, 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 no. The Bible does not say that. The Bible does say that you got to do it right. You got to do it in the right way. And sex is a powerful thing. And, and here's what the Bible says very clear. Sex God's way is one man and one woman in the context of marriage for life. And you go and you have as much sex as you want. And all the men said, amen. But that's God's way of saying that this is, my, this is my gift to you. But the enemy wants to come and twist it. Another one, common one. Don't think too much of yourself. Don't think too much of yourself. That's pride. Well, you think you're good about yourself now. Don't, don't, don't do that because that's pride. The Bible says pride is evil and you're going to hell if you, have, if you think good about yourself, if you think well of yourself, you're prideful and God is against you. Pride comes before it fall and he just exaggerates the rules of scripture. Now, the reality is this. The Bible tells us that we should know who we are made in the image of God that we are valuable. The Bible even says that we are the apple of God's eye. It says that we are in the palm of his hand and no one's going to pluck us out. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God loves you. And based on that, you should definitely feel well about yourself. You should feel good about that. That's not pride. That's knowing who you are. That's knowing that you're made in the image of a loving God. But the enemy wants to come and say, no, 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 that's pride, that's pride. So, so we falsely believe that humility is thinking less of ourselves. Humility is thinking we're no good, we're nothing, we're useless, we're terrible. Oh, I'm being so humble. I am a piece of human garbage. Don't even look at me. And that's not humility. That's not, that's not what the Bible wants us to know. That's not what God wants us to believe. God wants us to know his love for us. And so listen, here, here's how you say it, all right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less often. That's all it is. It's just thinking of other people just as often as you think of yourself. But the enemy loves to come in, and he loves to exaggerate God's rule. Another one, and this one is big in America. A lot of people in churches believe this one. He said this to you, doesn't the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? Money is the root of all evil. So if you have money, you're evil. If you like money, you're evil. You, you want to have money, you're evil. You're making money, you're evil. And so we feel like, oh, I got to live in poverty. I got to have nothing. I got I to scrape by. And, and if I'm scraping by, then God is pleased. And that's not what the Bible teaches. It's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does say that the love of money is the root of many forms of evil. But it does not ever say that money is the root of all evil. You need money. You need to make money. You need to give money. You need to share money. In fact, the whole book of Proverbs is one money principle after another. How to save, how to earn, how to work hard, how to get ahead, how to, how to be um, not a borrower, but a lender. And, and God wants you to prosper. And there's nothing inherently evil about money. This church is supplied by the money you give. Money can fund a missionary. Money can send uh, clean water overseas and open wells and, and this takes money so there's not that money is evil but the enemy loves to come and tell you twist the word of god and make you feel like you can't do it he exaggerates god's laws and he puts this burden on you this burden that you can't possibly 
you can't possibly bear. So he speaks for God. Number two, he questions God. He questions God's word. Let me tell you something. The enemy wants you to doubt what's in this book. Plain and simple. You know, isn't it funny that whenever there's a dictatorial regime in our world, the first book that they ban is this one. It's the first book they ban. In fact, I wish we had statistics on the most often burned books in the world. I guarantee you that the Bible would be number one. The Bible has been vilified. The Bible has been criticized. The Bible has been denied. Uh, people like to say that the Bible is just written by man. You hear these arguments. The Bible is just an old book. It's written by men. Uh, or the Bible is written to control people. In the Bible, just written to control people and put a bunch of burdens on them. And so here comes the lies of the enemy. He questions God's word. He says to Eve, did God actually say? In other words, doubt this book. Do you know why? Because the enemy knows the power of this book. The enemy knows the power of the word of God. In fact, he knows the power of the word of God more than we do many times. And he wants us to question it. He wants us to doubt it. He wants us to malign it. He wants us to, 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 to distrust it so that we struggle through life. Because the Bible, if we listen to the Bible, we listen to what God says, I guarantee you it's going to go well with you. Guarantee you. I listen, and, and I also guarantee you that if you disregard the Bible and you decide to do your own thing and not what the Bible says, it won't go well with you. It won't go well with you. And so over and over and over again, he questions the word of God. Uh, we get this in our schools today. Some of you young people, they get this from, from their friends or from, the, or, or from the media. The science has disproved the Bible. Science has disproved the Bible. You don't need to trust the Bible anymore because science has already shown us it's all wrong. I'd like to just say one thing. When was the last time science was ever absolutely positive about anything? Anybody ever notice how often science tends to change its mind? Like, I'll be watching, Cheryl and I will be watching the news, and they'll come out with this new study. It's, it's always about butter and margarine, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about? Like, they'll come out with a study, oh, science has just proven that margarine is actually much better for you than butter, so eat margarine. So what do we do? We all run to the store. Oh, margarine, margarine, okay, no, oh, butter's, butter's from the devil, butter's from the devil, okay, get rid of the butter, and all margarine. And then three months later, we're sitting there watching the television, and they say, a new study has just come out, and have found out that butter is actually better for you than margarine. Now we're looking at all our margarine saying, what the heck's going on with you? Get out of the house. Got to go back and buy some butter. Now we're, now we're all butter people. It can never make up his mind about butter or margarine. Which one is good for you? And it's also about sugar. What's up with sugar? Man, science has something to do with sugar. Sugar's bad for you. No, 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 sugar's good for you. And coffee. What is the deal? Coffee's good. Drink three cups a day. No, no, no. Coffee's bad. They just came out with a new study. I swear, it's all manipulated by what the farmers need to sell. I'm telling you, something's up. Science is always coming out with new hypotheses that disprove what we were supposed to do. I mean, poor Pluto, right? What is up with Pluto? Is it a planet or is it not? The poor guy's out there on the outside rim of our solar system saying, what's going on with you people in Earth? Am I a planet or am I not? And we're just always just disproving ourselves. And this is the reality. This is what happens, though. The enemy comes and says, oh, no, science, 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 science. And it's funny. It's funny how often science actually proves what's in this book. 
Like for a long time in human history, for the lion's share of human history, we believed that the earth was flat. Oh, the earth is flat. The earth is flat. And, and, and then some people said, oh, yeah, the Bible says the earth is flat. The Bible never says that. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40 that the earth is a sphere. That was written 800 years before Christ. That was written 1,500 years before Galileo ever said that it was a sphere. And God is like, yeah, it's a sphere. You know how I know it's a sphere? Because I made it. I mean, it's just like, but that's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants you to question God's word, distrust what God says, because he knows even better than you that you do what's in this book, and it's going to go well with you. So he questions the word of God. Did God actually say, thirdly, if you're taking notes, he misrepresents God. He misrepresents God. Look what he says to Eve. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. He misrepresents God. Oh, God, he's trying to keep stuff from you. God's jealous of you. you he knows that if you do your own thing, you're going to be really powerful. You're going to be just like God. At the end of the day, that's what sin is. Sin is just deciding to be your own God. And he misrepresents God. Every single temptation is rooted in that. And so I was looking at this, this scripture, Genesis chapter 3, this conversation between Eve and the serpent. I was looking at it and I was saying, Lord, there's more. I, I just can't put my finger on it. What, what is the deal in this conversation? Suddenly around th on Thursday, it came to me. Holy Spirit showed me. Do you realize that the devil never says to Eve, Eve, I want you to eat the fruit. Never says it. In fact, the devil doesn't even bring up the fruit, does he? Eve brings up the fruit. He brings up nothing. He just says one thing, and she's like, no, no, no. It's only that one right over there. And the devil never says, I want you to go and eat this fruit. It showed me something. It came to this conclusion. It's going to sound wrong, but it's actually right. The devil does not want you to sin. That's not his aim. All the devil wants to do is make you ignorant of God. That's all he wants to do. Because here's the deal. He knows that if you don't know God, you'll inevitably sin. He knows that if he can put a, a, a wedge between you and your heavenly father, that sin will just flow out of you. And so his number one goal is not for you to just sin. Because listen to me, if you sin, it doesn't help him and it doesn't hurt him. What does hurt him is if you know who you are in Jesus Christ. And he wants you ignorant of God. He wants to distort God in your mind. And so I wrote this down. I want you to write it down in your notes. Every sin in our lives, every sin in our lives is rooted in a distorted view of God. Every sin. So Satan comes and he twists what we think of God. This is why some of you do chase after money. This is why some of you are never satisfied with what you have. Because you constantly think that you deserve more. That God is being unfair to you. You're watching your friends 
get ahead in life and you're like, hey, what's going on with me? I, I should be getting ahead in life. And then you start to blame God and the enemy has got you in the palm of his hand. You start to chase money, you start to grab onto things, start to chase materialism, start to chase things. And, and Jesus comes along, what does Jesus say? Don't run after that stuff. Don't run after what the pagans run after. God knows what you need. And he's going to supply all of your needs. He takes care of the sparrows. He takes care of the grass of the fields. He takes care of the wildfires. He's going to take care of you. And then he says that great line, Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Why? Because God is good. So the enemy comes, and he's, he just he twists God in our minds. He twists God in our minds. So I, I, I wrote down some, some twists. Just kind of give you some examples. These aren't in your notes, but I just want to put them up on the screen. Number one, the devil likes to get us to believe that God doesn't have our best interest in mind. The devil wants us to believe that God is keeping stuff from us. God isn't good to us. God is ripping us off. We're not, we're not where we should be. God's holding us back. And the devil likes to put that into our minds, seeds of, the, of that distrust of God in our minds. And that's what, exactly what he says to eat. God knows if you eat that fruit, you're going to be just like him. He's holding back from you. And the Bible says this in Romans 8.32. God's good. Look at what he says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us what? All things. He's a giving God. So the enemy wants to make you think he's a taking God. He's not a taking God. He's a giving God. And he cares for you. He gave you his son, Paul says. Look, if he gave you his son, he's not going to withhold anything good from you. You've got to understand, if you don't have it, it's probably because God doesn't want it for you because it's bad for you. But if it's good for you, you can guarantee he'll give it to you. He'll bless it. He'll bless you with it. Number two thing I thought about this week, that the devil likes us to get us to blame God for tragedy and forget God in blessing. This is so common. This is so common because we know we do this because when something bad happens, first thing out of our mouth sometimes is, how could God allow this to happen? So we think of God in the tragedy, but we forget God in the blessing. Like, like a day is 365 days, right? And we'll have 364 normal days. It's 364 days where the sun rises and the sun sets where we have plenty of clothes and food, plenty of things going our way, plenty of friends, uh, life is good, but that one day of the year when everything seems all terrible and everything falls apart, that's the one day we start thinking, where's God? We start blaming God for, what, for the bad things in our lives and not thanking God for the good things in our lives. I think about insurance companies. This cracks me up. Insurance companies, you get into a car accident, they blame you or the other driver. But if a tornado comes and wipes your house out, what do they say? Act of God. Act of God. It's like, really? Act of God? Now we're going to talk about God? Now that my house is destroyed? Now this is the moment we're going to bring up God in the conversation, Mr. Insurance Company? Seriously? How about this? You blame God for my house being destroyed, and I'll have God pay my premium payments from now on. How about that? Is that going to work out for you? It's just funny, though. This is our country, too. Our country will have good... Our country is so blessed, we don't even realize how blessed we are. 
and then we'll have one bad thing happen, and everyone's like, oh, God, oh, God, how could God? I mean, seriously? Maybe, maybe it's just us, right? Maybe we're just being stupid, right? We're playing around with marriage. We're redefining the institution that God gave us. We're doing all these things, putting filth on our television, filling our kids with junk. And then we want to sit there and expect blessings from that. And then when something bad actually happens because we've been doing it for so many decades, and suddenly now we're going to blame God? How dare we? God is good. God is good. I guarantee you, I guarantee you that this is a lie that the enemy wants to stick into our minds every single day. You think about some of the complaints that we have as American citizens. Some of the complaints. We, we all need to get on a plane and go overseas and see what it's like in other countries. We really do. Because we'll have a breakdown if the plane is on the tarmac for more than 40 minutes. I mean, I get this. The story from people, oh, you will not believe the flight that I just experienced. Oh, <laughs> God was testing me. I was going through the fire purification. I was on the tarmac for 40 minutes. Can you believe that? What, what kind of God would allow that to happen? It's like, really? Did you not just fly through the air magically? Did you not just get from Texas to Boston in five hours? I mean, it used to take you 50 years to get that far. But you're there in five hours, and you're complaining about being on the tarmac for 40 minutes? I mean, come on. Did you not just sit above the clouds and let somebody bring you peanuts free of charge? It's like we, we complain about these things. And what we need to do, listen, what we need to do, we need to take a step back. We need to open up our gaze and see how good God has been to us. Next time you find yourself complaining about how they messed up your order at Dunkin' Donuts or your car didn't start or you got a flat tire or something ridiculous because ultimately most of our complaints are ridiculous, take a step back and start counting your blessings. Start saying, thank you, God, that I have a car that cannot start. Amen, somebody. Because that can get fixed. Thank you, God, that I have tires. Th thank you, God, that I actually have a tire that's in my trunk just in case the four tires that are in my car actually don't work. I mean, think about these things. We are so blessed. You know, Job was one of the most blessed men in the Old Testament. Blessed beyond comprehension. Devil comes before God and says the only reason why he loves you is because you bless him so much. And so God says, all right, have your way with him. Take everything away. Devil comes and wipes out his house, wipes out his children, wipes out his crops, his barns, everything, gone in a moment. And then there, and the Bible says that, that Job sits down, covers himself in ashes and sackcloth and mourns, and he says, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Job knew that God had given it to him, and it was every right of God if he wanted to take it away. And then it says this in Job 122, in all this, Job did not sin or what? Or charge God with wrong. In other words, Job refused to blame God for the tragedies. He refused to say, why could God, how could God allow this? And he gave God thanks even in the midst of his dark times. And that's how, but that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants us to come and, and blame God for tragedy and forget God in blessings. Number three. God wants us to, I mean, uh, the devil comes and he wants to make us believe that God is condemning, 
or angry with us. I'm going to tell you something. This is my testimony. Growing up, always, always felt like I wasn't good enough. Always felt like I wasn't praying enough. And I, and I was a pretty good kid. I really was. I'm going to be honest with you. And, I, and, I, and, and if I prayed for five minutes, the enemy would come and say, you should have prayed for ten minutes. And if I read my Bible for 20 minutes, the, the enemy would come and say, oh, you, read it, you should have read it for an hour. What's wrong with you? And over and over again, just loading me up, bondage and burdens and heaviness and weariness, and always made me feel like I was never measuring up. Is this talking to anybody? Like the enemy just comes and tells you, you're just not good enough. You're just not good enough. You're just not good enough. And, I, and it took me years Years to finally realize that God wasn't mad at me. God was, God was loving me, and God was seeking to save me, and God was working on me, and, and he's still working on me. And, and I know I'm not where I should be, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I know he's going to finish the work he started in me. And that's, that's what the enemy wants to do, though. He wants to make you think, oh, God is mad at you. messed up. You messed up this week. Listen, here, here. Here's the deal. We all messed up this week, right? Everybody did. The sad news is we messed up in ways we didn't even realize we messed up. Like there are things that you did this week you didn't even realize they were sin. You'll find out in a couple of weeks. I'm sorry in advance. But that's the grace of God. Grace of God. I look back on my life and I see the things that I used to do and I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize it was wrong. And, I let him, I'm, I'm, and I'm just constantly in awe of the grace of God through my life to put up with all those things that I, that I didn't do back then. And God was just graciously changing me and transforming me and, and conforming me into the image of God. And that's why Paul says that line. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. You've got to give God praise for grace. You've got to give God thanks for grace because he's not mad at you. He's looking to change you, transform you, and form you into his son and daughter. So the, so the enemy, here's, here's his deal. First thing he does, he comes to Eve and he accuses God. And this is what he does to you. He comes and he accuses God. God's no good to you. God is keeping things from you. God is not fair to you. So then we sin. We do things that we shouldn't do. We break God's commandments. We, walk, we do our own thing. And here's the deal. On the back end of the sin, the devil comes back in and says, how dare you do that? Don't you see how it's like a right-left punch? He accuses God, we do it, and then he accuses us. And this is how some of us are going through life. Just boom, 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 boom. He's just accusing and accusing and accusing. And I thought about this, summing up the devil's gospel in one sentence. The devil's gospel is this. God is not good, and you're no good. That's it. That's his entire gospel in one sentence. God is not good, and you're no good. And he wants you to think that all the time. Here's what the Bible says. Psalm 40, uh, 34, verse 8. Love this verse. Ready? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Somebody say it like you mean it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know about you, but I love to taste things. I love to taste things. And somebody says, mm, 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 this is so good. Taste. I'm like, all right, I'll taste that. Cheryl and I, we go to a store every once in a while. It's called Whole Foods. Yeah. On Saturday, we go together. 
Do you know why? Because on Saturday, they have free samples all throughout the store. I just love to roam through the hallways, the aisles, up and down, finding the free samples. I don't buy a thing. I just love to go taste and taste and taste. And they, I'll do the thing where I'll just go so slowly around, wait till they change shifts and come back for seconds. Amen, somebody? I love to taste things. Whole Foods on Saturday, I'll see you there. Amen. This is what the Bible is saying, though. Here's what the Bible is. The Bible is saying, why don't you take a look and taste and see how good God is. Look at Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery, threw him in a pit. They were going to kill him. What does God do? God raises him up and gives him the, 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 the rulership of Egypt, and pretty soon his brothers have to come and bow down before him. God is good. Look at David. David was given no opportunity to be king. His own father, his own father didn't believe in him, left him out with the sheep and, and paraded his seven older brothers before Samuel said, these guys are king worthy, but David, he's not king worthy, he's out with the sheep. And God says, no, I'm going to pick the one that you don't think is worthy. You know why? Because God is good. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he doesn't pick the religious leaders, does he? He doesn't pick the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the, or the people who got it going on in the temple. No, he goes out to the shores of Galilee and he picks some fishermen up and some tax collectors, some publicans, some sinners, some notorious people. And he uses those people to turn the world upside down. You know why? Because God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And you need to know that. You need to know that because the devil wants to come and distort your view of God. And as long as you have listened to the enemy, you'll never love God the way you know you should. And so how do we change? How do we win this battle? Well, if the devil is seeking to distort our knowledge of God, then the only way to win this battle is to truly know God. That's it. So... Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I asked you to turn there earlier. We'll go there now. 2 Timothy 2, and there's two, two weapons I want to look at here from this verse. And Paul is talking to Timothy in the context he's giving him pastoral applications and instructions, but I want to just look at one verse particularly. Verse 24, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now notice this. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Somebody say repentance. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The first thing Paul says to Timothy is this. Here's how, here's how you get to know God. Here's how you escape the traps and the snares of the enemy. Number one, God's power to repent. Repentance is a change of mind. That's all it is. All right, so all our lives, the spiritual enemy has been making deposits into our minds. All our lives, just telling us God's unfair, God's unjust, God's unloving, God doesn't care. That's what he's been doing your entire life. And all of that has built up in us. We're like backed up with all this junk in our minds about God. And here's what we got to do. We got to change our minds. But it doesn't happen by us trying harder. 
happens by God's grace. Look what he says again. God may perhaps grant them repentance. It comes from God. Say, God, help me to change my mind. Help me to stop thinking the way that the enemy wants me to think about you. I think about this. There are ways that we think about God right now that are wrong, that we don't even know they're wrong. And God has to change that in our hearts and in our minds. He has to transform. The Bible talks about this. Be not conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that your mind doesn't just change its thoughts generally, but it changes its thoughts about God. You have a change of mind. And then as you think, the Bible says, you act. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So that you change how you think about God, now you start to think and live differently, and you begin to receive God's truth. That's number two. Receive God's truth, but not just in general now. Receive God's truth about God. You want to know how to live a righteous life? Get to know Jesus. That's it. Look, it's not six steps to freedom. It's not five different ways you find liberty. It's no Jesus. It's no God. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from what? From knowing God. That's what our fight is for. Our fight is to keep out those obstacles to destroy the pride and to destroy the, the, the things that the enemy has been throwing at us that keep us from knowing God because we were formed in his image and we were created to know him. And he says this, we capture, this is warfare terms right here, we capture their rebellious thoughts. We teach them to obey Christ. In other words, I don't, I don't just turn away from things that I shouldn't be doing. I start turning toward the God who made me. Understand, understand, this is, this is why some of you cannot get over certain sins in your life. you got this repetitive sin. You just keep doing it. You keep doing it. You keep doing it. You're like, how do I stop? I don't know. I can't win this battle. You're right. You can't. The answer is not just saying no to what you shouldn't do. The answer is to start filling your minds with the truth of God, to know who he is, to know, look, I know some of you single people, you're struggling with sex, you're struggling with it, you're tempted in every way, I mean, you don't even have to have uh, access to a computer to see pornography in America, it's on billboards now. It's everywhere. It's on, I mean, I was watching a chelt, uh, uh, some stupid news program. This thing comes on. I'm like, that is like soft pornography right there. Just flooding at you all the time. And some of us, you're just trapped by it, and you don't understand why you can't get out of it. You can't get out of it by just trying harder to resist. You only get out of it when you behold the beauty of the purity of Jesus Christ. When you get to know him, when you open your eyes and you let him shine his glory over you, it's going to make that nastiness, it's going to make that sin fade away. And some of you are chasing money, chasing money. I got to have it, I got to have it, I got to get more, I got to get more. Ah, You're like panicking about money all the time. Oh, money, 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 money. And the reason why is because you have a bad idea about God. You have a bad idea about God. Here, 
here, God wants to supply your needs. God wants to take care of you. God wants your life to prosper. Now, there's things you got to do, and we could talk about those, but right now, you need to understand who God is. He's a good, giving Father who cares for His children, and you do not need to seek after the things of this world. What does Jesus say? All the pagans run out of these th- after these things, but your Father in heaven knows that you need them, and He's going to give them to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, right? And all these things shall be what? Added unto you. That's what it's about. It's about getting to know God. There's a book by C.S. Lewis. I close with this. Uh, the book is called The Screw Tape Letters. The Screw Tape Letters. Great book. And, and the book is um, it's a series of letters written by a commanding general in the devil's army to his uh, pupil. And the pupil demon has been assigned to this new believer. And so the book is all about how a general demon will instruct this pupil demon. And one of the lines is fantastic. He says this. This is the general demon to his pupil. He says, it's funny how mortals always picture us demons putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out, just keeping us unaware of what God is like. That's all it is, friend. It's about getting to know who God really, really is. And how do, how do I get to know who God really is? Here it is. Here it is. I look at Jesus. I look at Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 3. Here's the definition Jesus uses for eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is not just getting to heaven when you die. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus, knowing that he went to the cross for you, knowing that he hung there naked and bloodied, for you. And when you look at the cross, here's what you start seeing. You start seeing that God is not a taker. God is a giver. That God is not angry with you. God loves you. That God is not out to get you. God is out to save you. That he's a forgiving God. That he's a redeeming God. That he's a compassionate God. That he's a God who will go leave the 99 in search of the one, that you matter, that he wants what's best for you. He's your father. I want you to stand with me.